It's good to worship with you. It's good to proclaim truth together. I don't know. I, I think sometimes worship is one of the things that we think least about, even though we spend almost half our service doing it, that there is power in proclaiming what is true, uh, proclaiming those words aloud. And, and frankly, there's power even in proclaiming what is false. I, I was chatting with a, a friend of mine in psychology, James Kuntz, and he was saying there was this, there's a, this effect that's well-documented in psychology where if you, if you hear something that's false enough, even if you know it's false, somehow some part of you begins to believe it, how much more these true words, and somehow song is that place where most of the time we, we feel sort of permission to proclaim things like amazing grace. You know, I should probably be saying every day at some point, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And yet, the only time really I get around to saying those particular words is often in Scripture. So, it's good to proclaim Scripture, something that is true, that we need to reinforce in our hearts and hear our mouths say. Um, that's, you might have noticed that's a bit of an overlap from where we were last week in Colossians. We're going to be moving forward. We're going to start in Colossians 1.24, and we're going to be going through Colossians 2.5. You remember, this is a book written by Paul, and this is a section where Paul sort of explains his heart for the, the Colossians. Remember, Colossae was, was a small, not-so-important city, Paul had never been there, but um, uh, someone who Paul had led to Christ had gone there, proclaimed the gospel. People had believed. They'd formed a body of believers, which we call a church, right? And so Paul is writing them in Colossians 1. Remember, we started out hearing about Paul praying fervently for them. And so Paul is going to unpack sort of his heart for the church. And I've got to sort of have a caveat here. When I was a kid, I read this, and I thought, God, Paul's pretty arrogant, you know, I mean, because <laughs> here he is, you know, I mean, let's take a break from talking about Jesus for a few sentences, and let's talk about me. Um, I guess, so somehow, I thought Paul was maybe commending himself, but I didn't quite understand that Paul was the most known figure in the entire Christian church. So he is not, in a lot of places, telling the believers things they don't know. Um, uh, it's a little bit like Tom Brady. Um, like him or hate him, he's won more Super Bowls than anybody else. He's been in more Super Bowls. He has more passing yards overall in a game, more completions overall in a game, more touchdowns overall. You know, he's, he's won everything. Everybody knows him. And so that's kind of, Paul is somebody everybody knows, even you know, even the people that hate him are aware of Paul. And so Paul isn't really sort of telling them something they don't know. He's, he's sort of explaining his heart. He's sort of saying, this is, this is what it's like. So um, in verse 24, he writes, this is Paul writing, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So, 
He starts off, and when I didn't know anything, I thought he's saying, I'm suffering so much. Well, the, the thing is, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And everybody in the congregation already knew that, right? So Paul, you have to remember, this is the, the best-known figure in Christianity at this point, right? And so when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, everybody knew he was suffering. The surprise here is that he's rejoicing. That's the part that would give them pause and should give us pause. He's rejoicing, and he sees it for their sake. And so that's what, that's what this, this new church is saying. Wait, you're rejoicing? Why are you rejoicing that you're in chains? And, um, you know, you, you can see actually toward the end of Colossians, Colossians 4, he talks about his chains. But what he's saying is something that's really rather surprising. Uh, he says, in my flesh, I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Now, all of the believers would have known, Jesus' death paid the penalty for your sin and my sin and the Colossian sin. Jesus' death was enough. And so it's sort of like, wait, 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 what is lacking? What is lacking in Jesus? Well, it's this thing. When Jesus, Jesus' name, right, the angel came and said he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? Jesus came to be the visible representation of what God is like to people that didn't know God. Jesus paid the debt for our sin, and then he ascended into heaven. And he left a really important charge to you and to me who are called to be his body. That is to be a visible representation of what God is like. You see, Jesus isn't visible anymore. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And you and I, and, and at that point, Paul had the opportunity to be that visible representation, to get to be a blessing. And Paul is saying, I rejoice even in my suffering, I get to be that visible representation of, of what, what God is like, what it looks like to live a life in Jesus Christ. You know, he says in verse 25, of which I became a minister. I got the privilege of doing this according to the stewardship from God. God put me here that was given to me for you. I see this for your sake to make the word of God known fully. So I sort of see two themes weaving through the whole text. And the first one is about how purposeful Paul is, okay? So Paul is going to explain this, other, this thing, sitting in prison, that other people not, might not see as purposeful. Paul sees purpose. He sees purpose in suffering. He sees purpose in serving the believers. And he sees purpose in making the word of God known, known fully. So Paul is excited. That should be surprising. You know, that's not normal. You know, and this isn't abnormal for Paul. We know from Acts that there was a place that Paul and Silas were in prison. And about midnight, you know, they're in prison, in chains. They're praising the Lord. And the other prisoners are like awake thinking, what is wrong? Did they get hit too hard on the head? What, you know, what's happening here, right? This is who Paul is. He is thrilled to get to participate in what God is doing. So he continues to unpack that. So to make 
the word of God fully known, and then reading on to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's talking about this mystery. What's the mystery? The mystery is people want to know what God is like, right? What is it that Jesus came to do? Jesus came as the visible representation of what God is like. Throughout all of history, people have been wondering, wow, what's God like? You know, and the ancient Greeks would have said, "Mm, maybe somewhere on Mount Olympus, there's a bunch of people and they're fighting. Maybe that's what God's like. Um, And even, even the writers of the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament wrote true words about God, but uh, Hebrews says they longed to look into what was to come. And so it's, it's really kind of uncanny. Um, King David, uh, who wrote most of the Psalms, uh, he writes in Psalm 32, this is a thousand years before Jesus, he says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I mean, David knew that, Jesus, that God forgave sins. He didn't know Jesus' name, right? Jesus wasn't born yet. But somehow he understood God forgives sins. And to me, that's, that's like, wow, how does he know that? But he doesn't see the whole picture. It's mysterious. Somehow God is forgiving me. And David knew a lot about being forgiven by God, right? The same thing you go through, um, uh, what is it? The prophet Isaiah he, he writes about, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. Who? Isaiah didn't know. He didn't have a name. He just knew this was going to happen. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus. There's a mystery to it. You might have read that and said, that's amazing. What's going on here? Well, I don't know fully. You know, somebody's suffering and I'm healed. How's that work? Well, there's this mystery, and it's been made known. That is that Jesus came to pay the penalty for us. But there's more to the mystery. Um, Israel sort of has this history of sort of making, making their own people, kind of driving out other people so they could try to be pure. The mystery is, to them, God has been ch- chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles. The thing was, when God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, he said, I will use you to bless all peoples. So part of the mystery is, wait, God's been sort of setting aside his people Israel, sort of saying, keep separate. How's this supposed to bless everybody else? And now we see. Now we see the death of Jesus is spreading all over the world in Paul's day. And it's spreading to Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. So 95% of us in this room aren't Jewish, so we're Gentiles. And the beauty, the mystery is, I mean, if one in their day could have seen this congregation, it would have been really pretty weird to them. First off, you aren't wearing robes. But second, you know, I mean... There are males and females in the, in the same row, right? That wouldn't have happened in the Jewish synagogue, right? Um, there are people who, you know, maybe some of you are Jews. Great. Many of you aren't. Great. 
you know, that wouldn't have happened in their day. This is a mystery to them that we could have an identity so much bigger than male or female, than rich or poor, than anything other than we came because we need Jesus Christ. We need a Savior. And yet, and yet, I think the biggest mystery of all is in that last line. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And that's the second theme. You can see it in blue. The second theme that we'll come back to again and again. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I think it's interesting. There's this mystery that is, that is Christ in us. Not Christ near us, not just Christ paid the penalty for our sin, but Christ in us. It's mysterious, and yet it's, it's so consistent throughout Scripture. Um, Paul writes um, in Romans 8, he says, you know, if you're a, you are a believer, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, there's something happening here, Christ in you. He writes to the Galatians, also while he's in prison, um, He writes in Galatians 4, now because you are his children, when we are forgiven by God, we're also accepted by God, adopted as his children. Because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus' spirit comes into our hearts when we surrender our lives to him. That is the mystery of Christ in you. And I would have to say, if, if I saw a systemic issue in the, in the entire church, if I saw a problem, it would not be so much believing that Jesus Christ is a hope of glory in eternity, right? I think most Christians say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be forgiven, I'm going to get to go be with God. Paul didn't see the rejoicing as starting in heaven. The hope of glory for Paul was now. This hope, this glory of getting to enjoy God with us, getting to enjoy participating in what God is doing now. Do you know, you know, if you go back and look at Jesus preaching, uh, you know, start in Matthew, the first, the first words he's quoted as saying after he begins his ministry is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he says it again and again. It's now. It's not like the kingdom of heaven is later when you die and Jesus comes back. And it's now. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. This is Christ in you. It is a hope for today. And I think so often we sort of say, oh, if I can just sort of put up with today, <laughs> maybe I can get to eternity. Christ in us is freedom now. It is, it is freedom from bondage. It is seeing the goodness of the Lord. And this is really sort of a central theme, and I think you'll see it continue. Let's keep reading in verse 28. Him we proclaim, that's Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. So you see those two themes again, right? First off, Paul sees his purpose. He's excited about his purpose. So he sees his, war- warn- his purpose in warning everyone, in teaching, in, in maturing them. 
But then you can see Paul using himself as an example. So the second theme is Christ in us. And Paul talks about what that looks like for him. He says, for I toil. This involves his work, right? It's not just Paul sort of lays back and says, oh, God's going to do something. Um, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, struggling with all Jesus' energy, that he powerfully works in me. Christ in you is him breathing life, you working with his energy. It's a mysterious, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I wish I had a picture for you. Those of you who uh, have heard me speak before, I really like visual images because I think we're able to remember them better, and it helps us to sort of focus in on the, the central point. And the central point here is Christ in you. The problem is that is so big, I, I just didn't feel like I could give you a picture that would be, that would be enough that wouldn't be somehow cheating you. I mean, so Christ in you, uh, I thought about, my, my first thought was um, a bride and groom. You know, because uh, that's, a, that's a metaphor that's used in Scripture. Jesus is called the bridegroom. We, his body, the church, are called the bride. And there's a sense in which when, when we become, you know, wed to Christ by accepting his forgiveness, accepting his lordship. Uh, we, we live together. We do life together. We grow closer and closer. And there is a relational aspect that is, um, that is very much like a marriage. But somehow, I mean, a marriage, I love my wife, but she's still not Meredith in me, <laughs> right? Whatever that means. So, I, you know, I thought about, I thought about bone marrow, you know, maybe, maybe this is, you know, this, this would be, um, a few years ago, I got the, the profound privilege of donating bone marrow to, to someone who had leukemia. And the way that works, she had really strong chemotherapy that kills her bone marrow because it, it was cancerous. The problem is bone marrow is what generates blood. So the lifeblood that flows through you doesn't get generated if you don't have bone marrow. So they took my marrow and they put it in this other lady. And the strange thing is it's really this like tricky match, like a one in a million match. They try and match all these things. They don't bother to match blood type, incidentally, which is interesting. Why? Because once she has my bone marrow, her blood type becomes my blood type. Why? That's my blood. It's my DNA running through her veins. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what it's like to have Christ in you. He is growing. He is running through your veins. It's amazing. But that's not enough. You know, it's not just a marriage. It's not just bone marriage. His blood flowing through you, bringing his energy. Uh, it's, it's more than that. I mean, I was, I was sitting at my kitchen table this week thinking about this. You know, Paul has such purpose, and frankly, you can be married and you can have blood without, like, this, this purpose, and so much of, of what having Christ in you is, is a purpose that is better than anything you could do 
without Jesus. It's a purpose that's worthwhile. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. Probably the living for it is easier, is harder than the dying for it, right? Living for it, just participating in what's happening. It's all of that. And, and so I'm not going to give you a picture, but Christ in you is the point. It's all of those and more. That's the picture. Paul keeps going. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea. So Paul is struggling not only for this church in Colossae that he hasn't met, praying for them. He also, he also is praying for a church called Laodicea down the road. He's, he's struggling in prayer for them. He's hoping for them. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance in understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Can you see, he's passionate. Paul is overflowing with purpose, and it's not his purpose. It's God's purpose. He's so excited to see Christ formed in these people. It, that's what he's living for. He wants to encourage them. Uh, many translations, instead of knit together in love, it says united in love. He wants to bind them together. And this is what Paul's whole life is. He wrote another letter from, um, from prison to the Philippian church. And, he, and he, at the end, he, he has these soaring words about, you know, the goodness of God. And then he, he steps over at the end and he says, and I plead with Aodia and I plead with Syntyche, two, two ladies in, Philippi, in Philippi, um, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal Yokeville, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. He's saying it's so important that you get over whatever that little conflict is between you and that other believer. We need to be united in love. It's, it's so, somehow one of Paul's main messages. We've got to get over the minor stuff, and live to be united in Christ to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of this mystery, this mystery which is Christ in you. And so you can see Paul has purpose. His purpose is establishing, he has Christ in him working, right? Is establishing Christ in them. And so I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's so much here. I think, you know, the picture that you might get here is of a seed, right? What does a seed do? You know, that seed is you submitting to the Lord, accepting his forgiveness. And it becomes a great tree, but it doesn't end there. The beauty of Christ in you is it spreads. Every healthy tree makes seeds, and those seeds grow. And Paul is doing that as well. Christ in me should yield fruit in establishing Christ in others, in giving others the hope of glory. And that's what Paul is modeling for us. This is what he's passionate about. It's this amazing, amazing process. Okay, two more verses to go. Uh, and you can just see Paul's heart in establishing Christ in these believers. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Um, 
the translation I grew up with was fine-sounding arguments. He doesn't want them to get deceived. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I think it's noteworthy, and just like this is connected to the scripture that came before, this is connected to the scripture that we'll get to in the two weeks to come. Paul is going to start warning these people he loves about, about ways that the, the good news of Jesus Christ, Christ, who is the center thing, the picture, can be distorted. He'll talk about, you know, adding on sort of, well, there's this secret and there's, there's this sort of pagan thing. And if you kind of bring these in, then you'll have the real picture. You'll know it'll really be good. And then he, he warns them against sort of adding the, the legalism from the Jewish culture. And we'll get to that. But Paul's heart is to protect them. Notice, he, has, he doesn't say you're already deluded. He's concerned that they will be deluded. He wants to make sure they aren't deluded as, as anybody would love to protect their children or spiritual children. And he wants to protect them from plausible arguments, from fine-sounding arguments. Paul is not ignorant of the enemy's schemes, and we shouldn't either. We shouldn't be either. The, the enemy's scheme is to distort the truth by having about 90% things that are true and verifiable and about 10% that begin to supplant, begin to challenge the completeness of Christ in our lives. You know, and, and you know, we're no different. Um, I would say probably the most common thing that I see in our day is something that says, you know, you're supposed to be really nice. What the world needs is love. Is it true? Absolutely. Who's love? Jesus love, right? <laughs> but if you sort of take that out, well, yeah, the world needs love. And, um, you know, it's not really loving to, to just, um, just say Jesus is the only way. We should be loving and say, yeah, whatever. Well, now you've gone from sort of the truth that the world needs love to um, what? To the falsehood, right? Um, so I teach mathematics. How loving is it to my student to say, well, I care about you. You say 2 plus 5 is 10. I love you. Yeah, that's a good idea. No! You love them, and so you correct them. That might be a problem, <laughs> right? We love because he first loved us, and so we must stand for truth. We must stand for the complete gospel, unadulterated by the things that Paul warns us in the weeks to come. And he says, this is the way you stay steadfast. This is what he rejoices in. The strengthening of their faith. If we could go back just one sec. Um, the strengthening of our faith. He rejoices to see their good order and the firmness of their faith. Um, and these are con consistent themes that Paul goes to too. There's an orderliness, right? There's wisdom and understanding. You know, another letter Paul writes from prison to the Ephesians, he says, be clear-minded so you can pray. That our charge, our chief protection in many ways against these distortions of the good news of Jesus Christ is to, to think clearly, to recognize the centrality, to write it down, to talk about it, right? To encourage each other and to pray. And so we have this picture, and this is where I put these, I just summarized where we've been. Paul's purpose 
is the purpose of this text. He's talking about himself, but what I didn't get when I was a kid and I read this is he's really showing us a picture of what it looks like to have Christ in you. It's mysterious, it's hopeful, it's glorious, this picture of Christ in you. It's, it's serving, it's suffering, it's protecting, it's encouraging, it's uniting in love. It's strengthening the faith of those around you. It's warning and teaching. It's working with all Jesus' energy in you. It's making known the word of truth. That is this picture, this wonderful, all-encompassing thing, which is Jesus Christ in you. Let Jesus Christ be in us. Let's pray. Ah, Lord, I thank you that you so loved us so loved this world that you sent your one and only son Jesus that whoever believes in him will not die but will have eternal life and I thank you that that eternal life doesn't start at some time in the future but eternity of abiding with you begins as soon as we receive you let us truly believe that believe that you came that we might have life today have life to the full let us live that out. I pray that you would help us to submit fully to you. I thank you that you send your spirit the moment we submit. I pray that you would teach us to fan into flame the faith that is within us, to say yes to, to your spirit's work within us, to delight to see what you're doing, to grow in depth and to struggle with all our strength, but with the energy that your spirit works in us. We thank you, Lord, and we love you.